We often hear that the bare necessities of life are food, shelter, and clothing. Clothing and shelter are pretty closely related. We need protection and we need warmth to survive. And food certainly assumes water. We must eat and drink in order to live. And of course, procreation is essential if we're going to live past our own days into the next generation. So let's string these out. Food, drink, shelter, clothing, and sex. Essential to life. Seen in one light, these are the necessities. We pursue these things as necessities of life. But viewing this lineup from another angle, you have a neat row of idols that capture many hearts. The craven lust for these essentials of life is widely witnessed in our central culture. Food, gluttony. Drink, drunkenness. Shelter, obsession. Clothing, self-exaltation and status. Procreation, a burgeoning illicit sexual industry. The human heart converts the legitimate pursuit of necessary things into an idolatrous romp for more and better and better than yours. The life of Christ's disciples is a continual quest to love what we should love to the degree that we should love it. And this includes our love for the wonderful gifts of necessity that come from God's gracious hand. And we focus today particularly on that first one, food. We are born into this waking world hungry. In our infant lungs, cry out to be fed from our first moments. And virtually every day of our lives since then, we seek out this pleasurable necessity with keen attention. We seek food's nutritional value, its sustaining power, its comfort, and its gratifying taste. We like to eat. And this is all as it should be. Until we choose to love food more than we ought. Realizing this very danger, we can love any of the necessities of life more than we ought, but realizing this particular danger, God's people through the ages have recognized the connection between devotion to God and the occasional periods of abstinence from food. Religious fasting, the kind of fasting that is in devotion to God, we might define this way. It is voluntary abstinence from food, voluntary, in order to heighten the intensity of a believer's concentration on God in consecrated devotion to Him. But I suspect that fasting is not a means of devotion with which most American believers are very well acquainted at all. 
Fasting is not like a close friend who encourages our walk with God. It is more like a distant relative we've heard about, but we've never met. Or having met, we never care to meet again. We can point to all kinds of reasons for this, and there, there would be many. Let me just list one, perhaps, or a couple, perhaps. But the, the Catholic Church's abuse of fasting through the ages. And it's silly notion that fasting is giving up a certain dish of food while stuffing your face with another one. These kinds of things. We just look at this as silly. It's foolishness. But let's admit that another source of our aversion to fasting is certainly an idolatrous culture that cannot fathom how abstinence from anything that I want could possibly prove beneficial. As we return to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 today, Jesus provides a few words on fasting, a very few. On choosing not to eat for a period of time in order to heighten one's concentration on God in consecration to Him. He addresses this matter. And then we say somewhere along the line, the Sermon on the Mount will push us a few times, right? Here it is again. Put food aside? Out of love for God? What's that about? Let's go back to Matthew 6. This is a short, straightforward passage. We find it in verses 16 through 18. We'll take some time with it today to bridge the cultural gap between us and Jesus' day. Then we will briefly look at the text itself. And then finally, I'd like to consider fasting in some depth that we might bridge the gap between our culture and a biblical worldview. And there's a good deal of gap here. Remember, and those of you that have been here the last two weeks, you can probably do this in your sleep, but let's remember that Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1 is something of a banner that hangs over the next 17 verses, verses 2 through 18. Seek, and if I could put it in positive words, this way seek only god's approval with your religious practices not man's applause seek god's approval with your religious practices not man's applause that's christ's thesis here in chapter 6 and verse 1 he then deals first with giving matthew chapter 6 verses 2 through 4 one of the religious practices that was often done in wrong ways, and he addresses that matter, and he ends, remember the conclusion, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't give so that you get the attention, the applause of others, but as you give, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Know that He sees. Then secondly, prayer, verses 5 and 6. And remember, we have what is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer or the Lord's instruction on prayer in verses 7 through 15. We wanted to take the time to look at that section because of its significance in one week. And Rich led us through that ably last week. And we were challenged by the Lord's Prayer. But really looking again at prayer in verse 6, we find this repeated conclusion. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The third religious endeavor is fasting, verses 16 through 18. And once again, we see, uh, not verse 6, that should say verse 18, copy and paste error. And your Father 
who sees in secret will reward you. So clearly, this passage of Scripture, holding together verses 1 through 18, with address on these three areas. And again, because of our lack of understanding of fasting, I wanted to spend an entire week just on this aspect of the discussion. Jesus is not, in addressing these three situations, He is not addressing every situation and nuance of giving, praying, and fasting. But He addresses a major problem among pious Jews of His day. And that problem is that they would do these things, these honorable pursuits of God, in a way that would seek the approval of man. Trying to get people to see what they were doing. That problem was giving and praying and fasting, not because of those endeavors, but because of the motivation behind those endeavors to get people's applause. Now again, this is not our world whatsoever, is it? And let's think of it in terms of fasting. Picture yourself or someone is, is, is a factory worker. And for lunch break, there's this 30-minute lunch break. It's pretty tight, and you've got two places to sit. You can sit inside or outside, but that's really all that you can do. And you get to your table there at the factory, and you don't have a lunch. And somebody says, what's, what's wrong? You're not feeling well today? Did you forget your lunch? I can share some of my lunch with you. And you say, no, uh, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm fine. You can lie. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not feeling very well. Of course, if you're fasting, you're not, so it's maybe not a lie. But, but yeah, no, I, I don't, you can lie. You can deceive, just change the subject and ignore it or something like that. But if this person would press you and say, talk to me, what's going on? Why aren't you eating? And you said something along these lines. I'm fasting to concentrate more attention on God. You go ahead and eat. I'm going to spend my time in prayer. How does that person react? You're nuts. What is wrong with you? They might be calling somebody, a psychologist or at least a, a, a manager or something, and saying, this guy's got a serious issue. Am I far off? I think that's typically how we would expect our neighbors and friends and people in this culture, our workmates, to respond if we said, I'm fasting to pursue God. That is an entirely different culture than Jesus is speaking to. In his culture, religious fasting was widely practiced and widely respected. The sect of the Pharisees, get this, they commonly fasted every Monday and Thursday of every week. They skip breakfast and lunch two days a week. Fasting was only prescribed in the Mosaic Law on the Day of Atonement. After the exile, some other national fasts were added. But these Pharisees, to pursue God in the eyes of the world around, they fasted two times a week. In the Old Testament, it's not hard to find, commends fasting, some regularity with it when facing difficult circumstances and repenting of sin and seeking God's aid. Abstinence from food in Jesus' day was so understood to be a crucial means of fellowship with God, 
It was just part of the fabric of everyday life in Israel. And maybe on some level they might have viewed someone fasting like we might view a soldier dressed in uniform in public. Kind of a sense of respect and appreciation, recognition, kind of understand what that means. That's how they would look at someone who is fasting in religious devotion. But the Pharisees used this means of devotion to God as a means of gaining the praise of man. They used what was in itself commendable in the Old Testament and a good thing, but they used it in order to stroke their own pride. And Jesus exhorts His followers to pursue a superior way. So we're going to have to bridge a pretty sizable gap. We're not dealing with this problem. Jesus exhorts His followers to a superior way. Let's look at that in verse 16. Jesus condemns fasting for the sake of gaining man's approval. The negative example given here in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. That's the whole problem. So consider it. It's Monday afternoon. The ram's horn sounds and it's time for afternoon prayers. A Pharisee dressed in his distinctive robes times things perfectly and lands right at the corner of a busy street, stops there, raises his hands and prays to God. But for those close by, they look at his face, his lips droop. His face is haggard. With furrowed brow, he does all he can to assure that his neglected appearance makes him appear devout. There's some conjecture that they perhaps even use ashes to wipe on their face to, to be more pale. So there on the busy street corner, peering out of the corner of his sad eyes to see if people are watching, he prays with outstretched arms. Claiming to trust God, he trusts that people will notice that his prayers are the prayers of a fasting man. Thinking his prayers rise to God, he hopes mostly that his reputation will rise in the esteem of those who see him. What's Jesus saying? Very simply, don't do that. Just don't do that. Here's the problem, he says. There's a negative result. We have the negative example in verse 16, and then at the end of the verse, the negative result. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They want the applause of people, and the sad thing is, they get it, and only it. They have purchased the esteem of man and have paid full, been paid full price for their efforts. Again, we, we simply cannot relate. We just don't live in that kind of a culture. There's much application to the various religious duties that we perform. Do we perform them to be seen or do we perform them to relate to God, to love Him and to serve Him in humble devotion? But again, back to the military personnel. Perhaps there's some parallel there to how we might as a culture respond to someone with respect. So imagine you're in an airport and, and a, there's a, 
a military personnel, a soldier that's coming home to the Minneapolis airport as a decorated hero. The news has been out as to what he did and the awards that he's going to win. And you, you happen to be there waiting for an overseas flight and you're out in that area where people come out of customs and meet their families and their friends there outside of that, that door. And here he comes dressed in uniform with medals on his chest. There's a whole entourage around him and it's clear this is an important soldier. This is an important man. And he strides toward his family who is running to meet him. They haven't seen him for a long time. And you notice, you're surprised. He's not really looking at them. He seems to be looking more at the people who are gawking at him on the sides. And there's a group of attractive stewardesses there in the terminal and he kind of winks at them to get their attention. And his wife comes up and you see her face fall as he doesn't even act like he knows her. And you, you go, this is a weird scene because there, there's sort of this sense of honor and respect and, and your heart kind of pounds as a, as a loyal American and you're, you're thankful for this, but this isn't right. Something's kind of disgusting about this as he gives her a cold hug and she has a forlorn face and realizes he's really not all that interested in seeing me. Now change the picture. You see the same soldier coming in. He doesn't even recognize the people around him. He won't even know the next day that there were other people there looking at him. Completely forgetful of all of the other people, he locks in on his family. And they come running to him. And he runs to them. And they embrace. And it's like the rest of the world isn't there. This is in a sense to bridge the cultural gap. What Jesus is saying to us. Be that second situation. When you fast, when you do anything in devotion to me, look at me. Forget about the people that are watching. They may be watching, they may not be watching. Don't even think about it. Look to me. I am your Father. I see in secret. I will reward you with my response, with my joy, with my pleasure in you. That's the idea. It's no easy thing to set aside food for an entire day or longer in consecration to God. That's not an easy thing. In Israeli culture, for those who understood fasting, such devotion was respected as we might respect a decorated soldier. But if we're truly devoted, devoted to God, we'll not give or pray or fast to gain the applause of man. So Jesus commends now fasting for the sake of gaining God's approval. Don't do it to gain man's approval, but do it to gain God's approval. Verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In this context, I think anointing the head with fragrant oil or washing one's face was just normal hygiene. I don't think he's talking about anything important here, just to say, take care of your body. Don't disfigure your face. Don't make it look like you're fasting. Just make it look like you're going about normal life. Don't do anything to draw attention to the fact that you're fasting. There in the analogy is a soldier. Don't pay attention to the people watching. 
Lock into your family. Here, lock into God. He's the only one that matters as you're setting food aside in honor of Him. The rationale then is in verse 18. When you fast, do this, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That your fasting may not be seen by others. That is, that no one will notice that you are suffering the effects of hunger. This you want to keep private. But, Jesus promises, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The reward, again, is God's approval. His reception of us. The joy that that soldier feels in embracing his family, in some sense, pales but somewhat illustrates what he's talking about here. Your Father will receive you warmly. In warm embrace and acceptance, you will be communing with God. That's your reward. It's Him. Concentrate on the fact that God sees what you are doing and know that that is reward enough. Well, all of that is pretty straightforward. And it fits quite directly to what he has said about giving and what he has said about prayer. Seek God, not man. Seek his approval, not the applause of people. Do not prostitute religious devotion to gaining for yourself self-exaltation and pride. Simply put. But again, I wanted to spend some time today on this topic of fasting because of our lack of knowledge of it. And so to branch out from here and discuss this topically for a few moments. Jesus says, when you fast, don't do this. When you fast, do this. And so I'd like to ask a number of questions here together. First, is fasting appropriate for Christians today? We know the setting here. Jesus has not died yet. He's not risen yet. There's still the old covenant economy that is operative there with his listeners. They're under the Mosaic law, and maybe that's all the further that it applies. Did not, some would say, did not the death and resurrection of Jesus inaugurate a new age in which fasting is obsolete? In fact, we have some evidence in Scripture that might even point us that way. Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? What does he say? What's their complaint? Your disciples do not fast. But Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Doesn't make sense, he argues. The king has come. We should celebrate, not choose this foreboding, humiliating old covenant practice. So that might end it there. But reason number one why I think Christians should fast I think that it is an appropriate act of devotion to God, is what Jesus says next. Verse 20, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. 
when the bridegroom, when Christ is taken away, then they will fast. Now, someone might be quick to come in here and say, well, that's when he died. And then when he rose again, that's the end of fasting. Again, the king is alive. The bridegroom is with you. There's no reason to fast anymore. Well, I think what Jesus says next, we don't have it here on the screen in front of us, but the context that flows of new wines in new, new wine and new wineskins would indicate that a new era indeed was coming, but it was one in which fasting would take place. But an even simpler demonstration of it for sake of time is that is what we find in the New Testament church. If fasting was to end with Jesus' resurrection, this is a confusing passage. Acts 13, now there were in the church at Antioch various prophets and teachers. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, set aside Barnabas and Saul to this missionary journey. While they were fasting. So Jesus said, when I'm gone, then they will fast. And we find the New Testament church fasting. Setting food aside in devotion to God. A third reason that I think we could ask with this, or third reason, uh, of is it appropriate for Christians to fast, is what we find right here in Matthew 6. He says, but when you fast. Not if you fast, but when you fast. And again, all types of theological arguments could be put against it, but I think the fact that he is assuming that his followers fast, he says that his followers will fast when he's gone, and the fact that we find the New Testament church fasting is clear evidence that it is appropriate for Christians to fast. Second question, what practical purpose does fasting serve? I'm talking in very practical terms, and all of these are my suggestions and ideas, and I'm sure much could be added to it, but practically speaking, fasting rivets concentration on God. If you have ever had to fast before seeing a doctor, you know what fasting does. You're going to get a test at the doctor the next day, and you can't eat for 24 hours. What happens? Every time you reach for food, you go, ooh, no, I'm seeing the doctor tomorrow. Every time hunger hits you, you're doing something else, you're involved in other things, and you go, I'm hungry. And you go, oh, yeah, that doctor's appointment tomorrow. Every time hunger shows its face, you say, doctor. That's the practical, practical effect of fasting. Every time religious fasting hits you with hunger, you say, God, I'm praying, or whatever else. And we'll talk about some of these ideas in a few moments, Lord willing. When we abstain from food for purposes that we'll consider, our mind is riveted to God. There's literally nothing you can do to forget about it because the hunger pangs remind you. The stomach says, hey, I'm hungry here, let's eat. 
And what does your mind usually say? Yeah, not right now. I got some things going, but soon. Or your mind says, that's a really good idea. Let's go find some food. But in this case, the stomach says, hey, have you forgotten about me? I'm hungry. And what does your spirit say? Not now. Not now. This has been given to God. This fast is devoted to Him. Every time hunger shows itself, you have this response. There's no way around it. Well, what are the reasons for fasting? What reasons might we list that uh, are examples of appropriate fasting? And I draw these from a whole Bible consideration. That is, fasting that we see in Scripture seems to orient toward a few ideas. Reasons for fasting, one being to express repentant humiliation before God. And right there you see why fasting is not common in America. Humiliation? What does that mean? I humiliate myself before God? I choose a position of humility? What on earth is that? Our our culture provides virtually nothing that helps us understand humiliation. The Jewish culture, we know, they put ashes on their head and they put burlap around themselves and they did all kinds of things. They didn't cut their nails and they let their hair grow and they didn't take a bath. They humiliated themselves publicly. This was a way of life. Here, they didn't even know what that means. But the Bible is replete with examples of God's people humbling themselves before Him in fasting. Acts 9.9, Saul of Tarsus comes to know Christ as his Savior and he does not eat or drink for parts of three days. It's an ideal way to pursue the first beatitude. We hear this cry, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Fasting is a way of humbling ourselves and very much feeling and sensing, I am poor in spirit. It is secondly, a way to express lamentation before God. We may fast to participate in and to reflect God's grieving heart in the midst of a tragedy. We may fast in order to pray with heightened intensity when facing a severe trial of a fearful future, something along those lines. When a mate dies, when we learn we have a disease, when we learn of a disaster that snuffs out the life of a large number of people, joining with God in fasting to grieve. Lamentation. When our next president is chosen. That was a joke. I think... Yeah, moving on. (laughs) Another reason to consecrate or dedicate oneself to God before a marriage, before your child's marriage, before your grandchild's marriage. Marriage is tough terrain. It exposes sin. It calls out of us Character traits we don't naturally have. Might be a good time 
to fast and pray. Before starting a new job or joining a new church, entering into a new ministry and saying, God, I'm yours. I give you this fast to say that. Before choosing a college, at the birth of a child, at the birth of a child, you're fasting anyway. You might as well turn it into religion, right? You're going to be missing some meals there, Mom, at least. But seriously, bringing a child into this world also is a challenge that will test our faith and test theirs. It's a fallen, broken world. We fast. At the beginning of a great undertaking for God, we see many fasting in Scripture. Another reason, to pray to God with heightened intensity. Maybe for a dying parent or for a wayward child. Maybe in solidarity with hungry Christians who are imprisoned and oppressed and cannot eat to any level of satisfaction. Maybe it's to, in prayer, seek God for the spread of the Gospel. To give a fast to the Lord, pleading that the name of Christ would be spread throughout this world. And as Jesus indicates in Mark 2, praying that Jesus would come back with intensity, with focus to pray for the return of Christ. Another reason is to demonstrate that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We get this obviously directly from Jesus' fast. And the connections here to the Old Testament are unmistakable. Israel was led by God into the wilderness for 40 years. God led His children into the desert in order that they would suffer hunger. That'll stretch our categories on what it means to be a father. Isn't a loving father supposed to protect and provide? Yes, But in His divine wisdom, God led Israel into the desert so that they would hunger. Because He hated them? Because He just wanted them to be miserable? No. What did He say? So that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I led you there to teach you that. And what does Jesus say to Satan when tempted? Turn these stones into bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a good reason for fasting. To know Him. To feed on His Word. To commune with Him in a unique way is another reason. Coming then to a practical question along with the previous three. Number four, how do I go about fasting? How do I go about this properly? First of all, I think we must determine that you are physically capable of fasting. There are people struggling with certain physical ailments that may not be able to fast safely, and that should be recognized. It's not a biblical command like prayer. It's not necessary to godliness. But if you can fast for a doctor's appointment, you can fast in devotion to the Lord. 
If a doctor would say, don't you dare fast, we're, we're going to have to do our tests some other way, I, you cannot miss food, don't do it. But if you can fast for a doctor, you can fast for God. And again, how often and in what way, all of these physical issues need to be brought into consideration. Those who struggle with anorexia, nervosa, should not fast. They have other matters to deal with first. And their loved ones should not permit it, if at all possible. Anorexia is not fasting, it's sinning. It's not feeding on God, it's starving the body that He gave us to steward. So we would not support that or encourage that in anyone. What can appear to be religious devotion and fasting can be nothing more than rebellion against God. And we don't want to contribute to that. On a related point, if you are under 18 years of age, I would encourage you to talk to a parent before fasting. You say, well, you're not supposed to tell anybody. You're supposed to do this in secret. You're not supposed to fast to get people's attention. Gaining counsel if you are a minor, would be very wise. Just privately, private conversation of good counsel with an adult who can support you and pray with you and encourage you and watch with you might be very wise. So, should I even do it? Physically, we need to ask that question. Secondly, choose a reason for your fast. This is not a biblical law, but I think that it's very biblically proven, or, or at least illustrated, that fasting in the Bible always seems to respond to a specific concern. So you might say, I'm going to fast for the return of Christ. I'm going to fast for a grave concern or fear that I'm facing, a major turning point in my life to humble myself before the Lord. To be poor in spirit before Him. To join God's sorrow in the suffering of others. We may learn, for instance, of a great tragedy and say, God grieves, I will grieve. And I will give a fast to this grief. Don't ever be driven by some sense of guilt I have a child that's getting married. I've got to fast. I've got to fast. Joining a new church or there's this great tragedy that's taking place. I have to do it because if I don't, what's it going to mean? How's God going to see it? Don't do that. Don't be driven that way. Just determine from time to time to see God in a unique way, but identify your reason. I give this fast to this point or two or whatever. Pray, thirdly, about the reason you are fasting every time you feel hunger or even during the time you normally would be eating. So if I'm fasting for the return of Christ, every time hunger pangs strike, pray for the return of Christ. That type of thing. Whatever the reason is that you're fasting, pray when hunger hits. And it'll hit. And it'll hit. And it'll hit. It's an amazing thing. You can't escape it. And it will remind you to pray. Number four, determine the length of your fast. You can extend it if you believe that that is wise, but probably best to identify a period of time and aim at something 
lest, I think probably, certainly we could say it could go longer than it should, though uh, physically speaking, for healthy people, that's a lot longer than you would think, as long as hydration is there. But determine a length of your fast so that you don't go the other way. And you're shooting at absolutely nothing, and you're constantly caving in and not sure if, sure if that was a fast or just skipped a snack. Just, just pick that carefully. If you've never fasted before, you might start with one meal. That doesn't work for me, because in the demands of my life, missing breakfast and missing lunch happens all the time. And it's nothing more than a kind of an annoyance. And you might be that way too with your work. It just to skip a meal, you skip meals all the time. That's kind of part of life. I'm not saying it's a great idea, but it just is just what happens. If that's where you're at, I suggest that you choose to abstain from food from after supper one night until supper the next night. So no late night snack, no breakfast, and no lunch. No food until the next supper. Now in that. There are varying views of hydration. I would suggest you always hydrate through all of that period for dehydration can cause some significant problems. We don't, that's not the point of any of it, to cause some physical trouble. And obviously, if you're operating heavy machinery, this may not be a good idea. But there might be a time of even setting aside uh, hydration, liquid or, or water, if you know that physically speaking, that is something that is appropriate. It will add to the sense of humiliation. It will add to the sense of weakness. It will add to the heightening intensity of prayer if we withdraw water. But there, we have to be particularly careful of our physical movements during that time. If you have never fasted before in this way, I'm pretty confident you will find this very, very challenging. And you have to be driven by something more than just the necessities of life. You've got to be driven by a desire to know God. In an earnest, humble desire. Not to be seen by others, but to know Him better. This is a tool. It's a tool you can grab onto. It's a tool that you can use to that end. And I'm pretty confident that you'll find it difficult, but with a little savvy, you can even keep it hidden from your family members. Now, there's been an occasion or two when I've had to tell Beth, I'm just not eating right now. That's my wife. But even there, with a little savvy, you can keep things quiet. I think I forgot to put the last one up, so I'm beyond where number four is. Do not lie or deceive, but do what you can can to leave the matter between you and God. So there's been some times, as I said, where you might have to share that with a family member, but even there, just a little savvy can keep everybody in the dark and no one ever knowing. The explicit message of Jesus' teaching is not to call us to fast. The explicit, that is the implicit message here. The explicit message is what? It is to seek only the approval of God in all of our religious deeds of devotion. For those in prominent ministry positions, this is a stern warning. 
We must never prostitute the service of God for the recognition of people in whatever it is. But for those who serve God in quiet ways that no one ever sees, this is a reminder to us that God does. He sees it all. He sees that little thing you did at work day yesterday that nobody else noticed. He saw it. You skip two meals in a day. You give 24 hours to fasting to plead with God. To call upon Him to contend for His glory. No one else ever knows, but He does. That's the point. And when you sit on your love for food, when you squash it, when you lay this necessity aside for a while in order to commune with God in prayer and feed upon His Word, know that God sees and expect His blessing. I don't mean expect in the way so many TV preachers particularly preach today. Expect it in that you will get what you want. You may get what you never thought you could want. But expect that He sees and knows and loves you. That's what Jesus is encouraging us with here. That's what He's saying to us. The Lord sees in secret. And you will draw close to Him. And He will draw close to you. That's your reward. Not the eyes of others. But the smile of God. Trust in the beauty of of His approval. There's a tool here that some of you may say, I didn't know existed. I didn't know that this is even appropriate. I'd like to just encourage you, it is appropriate. There is a way forward in this. There is no necessity for anyone. I don't think anyone should go from here feeling beat up that I've got to fast tomorrow or something along those lines. But know it's a tool in your pocket. And God is going to move you. If you have a sensitive heart toward Him, He's going to move you. That there's going to be something that comes into your life. When you say, this necessity I give to God in sacrifice, that I might plead before His throne with unique concentration and intensity. There's going to be a sense of what God is doing in this world, of what is coming in the promises of God's Word that move you to say, I have this tool. And by God's grace, we'll use it with that effect. Not in a ritualistic way, not in a scheduled way, but in a way that walks in sensitivity to the Lord that says, I will give this day And I won't eat, but I will feed on God. I will feed on His Word. And I will seek His approval in this unique way. The basis of that approval is not our fasting. It's never us. The basis of God's approval of any sinner is Christ crucified and risen. 
And that may be the liberation for you today, not to learn about fasting and not to pursue fasting, but to realize that God can approve of your life and won't, will never do it on the basis of your good deeds, your religious devotion. Because as he has said in his word, those things are useless. But you may be coming today to recognize that the approval of God is centered on Jesus Christ's approval in the eyes of the Father. That can be given to you as a gift and as a status as you come before the Father's throne trusting in Christ crucified and risen. That He died for your sins. That He rose to give you life. And there the Father approves. As the Apostle Paul puts it, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That approval is worth everything. And when we receive that approval, we many times, as God would lead us there, can find opportunities to celebrate it in, in prayer and at times to intensify those prayers through fasting. To say that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's pray. Lord, again, you have done it. You have pressed us out of our comfort zone. You have brought before us a message that is hard to hear. And to be challenged to lay down food and devotion to you seems to be to lay down life, and indeed it is. I pray that you would remove from any mind here today any false motivation any wrong conclusion, but that You would lead us as a church to seek You. And I pray that this tool would be in our toolbox of sanctification and that we'd be willing to use it. Draw us to Yourself. Hear the cry of our heart. May You be our delight and our reward. And may You draw to saving faith those who know not Christ and to intimacy your children, we pray through Jesus. Amen.